Hello everyone, welcome back to the Manic Manor podcast. This is Mitchie. So for today, we are going to go into part one of what will be a three-part series involving the events that unfolded in Japan on March 11th, 2011. A catastrophic 9.0 magnitude earthquake would hit the nation of Japan, causing the country to shift east and sink from the sheer size of this earthquake. It would become known as the Tohaku quake and tsunami that would devastate 20,000 lives. At 2.46 p.m. local time, the earthquake would strike with its epicenter being off the northeastern coast of Japan, and the entire nation would feel its rumble, but prefectures like Miyagi, Iwate, Ibaraki, and Fukushima would feel some of the hardest blows, causing massive amounts of damage in structures completely crumbling all around it. Now, while the earthquake itself was one of the strongest ever to be recorded in history and the strongest to be recorded in Japan, lots of the true loss and devastation would follow as a result of the incoming tsunami. This tsunami would reach heights of about 40 meters or 130 feet tall in areas and would be the cause of many of the deaths as well as a lot of the destruction that we see for areas such as the place we're talking about today, Fukushima Daiichi Nuclear Power Plant. The power plant would become submerged after the tsunami, with three workers ending up being confirmed to have perished in the wake of both the quake and tsunami. Backup generators that were designed to keep the reactors cooling even when a massive earthquake hit would also be destroyed. And the seawall that was made to protect the plant was only about 6 meters or 19 feet tall, but the tsunami waves had reached levels of 15 meters or 50 feet tall, easily overpowering the barrier and devastating the plant. This would lead to a multitude of meltdowns of reactors in the area, hydrogen explosions, and of course the mass evacuation of many people in the surrounding area and radiation being exposed into the open air. This disaster would go on to be ranked number seven alongside Chernobyl on the nuclear event scale when it had originally sat at a level five, but this was factored into the amount of people that were rendered from their homes and completely displaced. But how did such a plant that was designed to provide power for the nation of Japan fall so easily and quickly to this once-in-a-lifetime disaster? There's been much controversy surrounding the owner of the plant, TEPCO, or the Tokyo Electra, uh, Electric Power Company, much as to the fact that they were made aware of the potential danger of this nature and knew that it was a possibility that it could happen, but they chose to ignore the data, demand recalculation of said data, only to receive the same numbers and completely ignore it still. But the plan itself was not without issues from just this type of controversy with the data calculation. It had been having issues well back into its earlier years. Fukushima Daiichi was formed and began its operations starting as early as 1971, after Japan had rebuilt itself from the Second World War. The area of Fukushima was once an area ripe not just with fruit like peaches, but also coal. The coal was the main source of power that Japan had, with multiple coal mines being in the Fukushima area. However, around the 1950s and 60s, influence from the U.S. tried to motivate Japan to switch to nuclear energy, the same type of energy that 
caused bombs in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. After, of course, some hesitation, we saw that the change did go underway, and TEPCO formed plants like Fukushima Daiichi and Fukushima Daini. By 1979, Daiichi had all six reactors up and running, and by 1987, Daini would have all of their reactors up and running as well. But there were still issues. For starters, the construction of the plant, meaning Daiichi, was that they had to tear away at the ground to level the plant, putting it much closer to sea level. And this was in an area that was known to have had, you know, tsunamis and earthquakes. Granted that it had been a while since a massive one had hit that area. But they still leveled it closer to the sea level. And of course they did construct a seawall. But that seawall, as I said, was only 6 meters tall, or roughly 19 feet. As I stated before, records had indicated that a tsunami of about 8.4 meters had been recorded in that area, but TEPCO only seemed to have taken that at a minimal value because of the amount of time that had passed. They seemed to look at a different study that showed that they only needed to build the seawall at a 6 meter level. But we flash forward to 2008. And it's noted that TEPCO did receive reports from someone that a tsunami and quake, much more dangerous and lethal, the size that we actually saw in 2011, was capable of hitting that area. However, they wanted the data to be reanalyzed. And even with it being reanalyzed, the numbers still proved to be the same. But somehow it didn't change anything. Naichi also had other issues, not just with the seawall and the leveling of the plant, but within functions of the plant as well. Dating back to 1978 in the third reactor, on that day fuel rods had fallen to the bottom of the reactor, causing a massive reaction. And in total it would take about seven and a half hours for the workers to fix this issue and place the rods back into their position. But it seemed like there was no official record of this. Nothing to be found until a worker came forward in 2007 blowing the whistle on this and it in turn showed a chain of issues in official reporting from TEPCO surrounding anything bad that happened at the plant. When TEPCO was asked about it their response was that the workers felt pressure to make the plant look good and make it appear like the plant was working in a perfect condition much to the dismay and delusion of the outside world. But this wasn't the only issue. February of 2009, there was a bad valve that caused the alarm to go off, resulting in a shutdown at the plant. In March, same reactor that we saw in 1978, Reactor 3, showed more issues with an overinsertion of control rods, and inspection showed that they were unintentionally inserted. November of 2010, Reactor 5 had its own shutdown once again involving rod adjustment issues and also a low water level within the reactor. But thankfully, nobody was hurt as a result of those low water levels on this. But that brings us to the day of March 11th, 2011, when the earthquake struck at the factory at 2.46 p.m. local time. Former workers that would later be interviewed said that in the prior days leading up to the events of March 11th that they had experienced numerous earthquakes. 
but this wasn't something that was uncommon for Japan, as it sits on a ring of active fault lines. But this quake that happened on March 11th was different. 9.0 in magnitude, although initial reportings of that day showed it was like 8.6, 8.7 in certain areas. When this earthquake struck, it lasted almost six minutes, doing a sizable amount of damage to anything and everything in its path. And of course, as a result of this earthquake, the plant was designed to go into a shutdown to protect the reactors from any kind of damage. As so far, we see things went according to plan. The earthquake hit, the plant shut down, backup generators kicked on and started. These generators were unfortunately located in the basement level of these unit buildings, and they were the only hope at preventing a complete meltdown at this point. Now, despite the reactors going into shutdown, the nuclear process doesn't just stop. There's still massive amounts of heat that's generated by these fuel rods, and the workers at the plant have to carefully watch and ensure that things don't either cool too quickly or they don't cool at all. Otherwise, we see things like the water in these reactors completely evaporate away, just boil away to nothing, and exposing the fuel rods, which can result in the meltdown that everybody was so afraid of. But unfortunately, the disaster was far from over and didn't just stop at the earthquake. There's a saying that the tsunami will follow where the earthquake goes. And that has been said by multiple people that I have seen doing my research. And follow did this tsunami do. People at the Fukushima power plant knew, of course, that a tsunami was probable and tsunami warnings did go off. The sheer size of the quake alone was enough to let people know that it was definitely a possibility, but people that were working there that day were not prepared for the massive amount of this behemoth of a tsunami. So after this earthquake, many people did end up evacuating. Um, they would go to the emergency center of the plant. It was on a higher ground. Um, plant manager Masao Yoshida now had to ensure the safety of the plant as well as the people that were there. And control route operators like Ikoizawa were left in sheer darkness trying to navigate through this entire situation. When the tsunami finally did hit, the plant and everything around it was powerless in the fury of Mother Nature's grasp. People only had a mere minute or mere minutes of warning before this monster came barreling inward. And when it crashed in, the lower levels of the plant, including the backup generators, were completely done for and submerged. This put the plant into SBO, a station blackout. Not something that you want to hear at a nuclear power plant, especially for the control room operator managers like Izawa. And it wouldn't be long before the reactors started to go into a dire situation one by one. And over a period of less than two weeks, we saw on the news, things coming to a massive head. Now, of the reactors that were working that day, there were units 1, 2, and 3. Uh, units 4, 5, and 6 had maintenance, so they had not been in operation. But without power, 
Yoshida knew that it would only be a matter of time before a meltdown would occur. So his job as a plant manager was to try to keep this from happening. They needed to keep these reactors cool. But it would prove so difficult after an earthquake of that type of devastation and a tsunami that completely flooded inland. It would be more than difficult to find fire trucks or hoses or anything to pump water into these reactors. Because that's what they were going to have to do. Without any type of working power, they had to ensure that that water did not expose those fuel rods. While they were doing this, and the hours ticked by, radiation levels began to rise in the units, and concern came at the potential of a meltdown. As they wrote on their whiteboard in the emergency room, all the numbers that they had, and they just continued to increase. The prime minister at the time, Naoto Kan, he was notorious for having to have stepped down after the fact, but he faced his own scrutiny from this. One of those major scrutinies being that he in turn decided to go to Fukushima Daiichi because he was frustrated at the lack of communication that was going on. And things were chaotic as it was, but he still decided to show up there. Khan was unable to understand why numerous hours were ticking by and they didn't have a plan in on how to vent because the initial plan was with the rising pressure in these reactors that they needed to vent it and get the pressure out to avoid, you know, a core explosion. And somehow he couldn't put together just how dangerous it actually was, especially for the fact people had to go in there manually and do it. They didn't have the electricity to turn it on like they normally would to vent the pressure out. This is where plant manager Yoshida comes in and tells him exactly what they were going to have to do and told him it would be a suicide mission for these workers who had to go in into a literal heart of the beast to try to save the plant. But even with the venting, there were still other issues such as the hydrogen gas that was being exposed as a result of the venting. Hydrogen gas, when it's released and mixed with oxygen, can be extremely explosive. And we see the very next day on March 12th, a hydrogen explosion that just hours after Khan had visited and the venting plant had been explained to him would happen. Now with an open reactor building, responders on the scene would have to rush to fill in the core with fresh water and five feet worth of fuel rods had been exposed in this explosion, and radiation began to leak. Now, of course, people were evacuated before they started doing the venting process because they knew radiation was already going to be leaked into the air, but this just made it even worse. So they continued to pump in fresh water until the fresh water ran out. And then it was at this point that Yoshida had to make a decision to pump in seawater to prevent the core itself from exploding. Now, the difference with um, Chernobyl and Fukushima, even though they are listed both as number seven on the nuclear scale, was the types of explosions. Now, in Chernobyl, the core itself ended up exploding, but the explosions in Fukushima were just within the reactor buildings. So they were trying so hard to keep the core itself from exploding. But even so, 
It was still capable of a massive death toll just from the radiation amount that was being released. So the only option that Yoshida really had at this point was to inject seawater. But TEPCO, however, did not like this idea. They were more concerned about money and saving their reactors, and they didn't want the corrosive sea salt to do any kind of damage and demanded Yoshida stop the pumping of the seawater. But this is where Yoshida had to make a crucial decision and probably would win the best actor award ever. He had to pull a fast one on TEPCO, making them believe that he was indeed stopping the seawater injection, but that wasn't the case. The workers were still ordered by Yoshida to continue this injection, and this would be a move that is credited to Yoshida for actually saving the plant as well as Japan from way worse devastation. Not saying that they didn't already suffer so much from the earthquake and the tsunami alone, but the nuclear fallout could have been way worse had it not been for Yoshida's quick thinking with the seawater. So now they had to keep an eye on the remaining units, but like clockwork, on days March 14th and 15th, more explosions would happen between the second and third reactors, and even reactor 4 showed explosion damage as well. And there was a case of white smoke that a workers initially thought meant that they were successfully venting the reactors of pressure, but now looking into the future and everything, we know that that was not the case. It was an omen of the ever-built-up pressure just waiting to blow. So all these workers could do was continuously and tirelessly pump water from any source that they had into these reactors. And the mission would last, like I said, close to two weeks, and people were forced to stay behind. Um, the people that are now known as the Fukushima 50. Although... It was more like 68 to 69 people at any given time that were there with about roughly 50 people that were working, just trying to keep everything under control. And their health was now a potential cause of concern because of how much they had been exposed to. Now, the reason why there was so little people that was left is because eventually TEPCO took it upon themselves to make a decision that... There were only so many people that were considered necessary to protecting the plant, and the rest of them were just told to go home. And even with the U.S. stepping in towards the end of this, and massive amounts of water attempting to be dumped from the sky, as we've seen in the news for anybody who was around during the time watching this unfold, it would be months before the plant successfully noted that they had entered into a cold shutdown. But by then, the damage had been done. Radioactive water had leaked and contaminated nearby soil. People were evacuated from their homes. Farm animals left behind. Just everything completely frozen in time on March 11, 2011. Concern to water supplies was extremely heavy. Multiple miles of land surrounding the plant was now noted as being uninhabitable. A major issue from this disaster that was taken away was the lack of proper communication amongst TEPCO, the plant itself, and government officials. And Daiichi was already running on the absolute bare minimum of power that they had with one working generator, and plant manager Yoshida doing everything that he could to work with what was given to him. 
He was stuck in an emergency room center that had no windows, and he was unable to properly see what was happening to his people as he attempted to guide them through this disaster that was unprecedented. And even in the months and years after, people were so worried about the spread of radiation. And of course, like I mentioned before, Prime Minister Khan, he was forced to step down as Prime Minister as he was heavily criticized for the way he acted in the crisis, including going to this already strained plant that barely had enough equipment to supply to the essential workers of the fact. But the issues are still far from over. We are now 12 years out from what had happened on the day of March 11, 2011. And Japan still has issues with the collection of the radioactive water. And that brings us to the issues that we see now that have currently been listed in the news. Thousands of drums that once lined up on this thriving plant now serve as a reminder of that catastrophic day. They stand at about 96% capacity and are stated that they will be completely full by fall of this year. So the issue stands is that the water has to be moved, has to be dumped. But where are you going to put radioactive water? Now Japan had a plan to release this water via a pipeline into a coastal pool, kind of at various times, various measures, but that's not necessarily being met with a lot of enthusiasm. Especially for countries like China and South Korea, who have shown their upset and anger towards the potential consequences of releasing contaminated water into the ocean. Uh, fishermen are also concerned about the local marine life supply and how it's going to detriment their livelihoods. And you can't blame them for that one bit. TEPCO, although not with the best track record at this point, claims that they did studies on the fish that were in this radioactive mixture and compared it to other fish that were not in the mixture and even did a whole thing where they had the fish in one mixture and then put it into another, and stated that while the radioactivity levels did go up in the fish, they did subside, and they felt confident that this would be of a minimal effect to the public safety. But regardless, 12 years on, the haunting memories of the Tohoku quake and tsunami, as well as the Fukushima nuclear disaster, still ring heavy in our ears. When it comes to decommissioning a power plant, it can take at least 30 to 40 years. And they're still working on cleaning up what's going on at Fukushima. And they're not really able to look into like certain parts of the reactors because of how heavy and high the radioactive level is. But they're doing everything that they can to clean it up. But it shows that the public no longer had a safe trust in nuclear power, granted that it was already kind of shaky as it was. It tarnished it, and even in other countries like Germany, people were starting to want to do away with the nuclear power just because of the danger that it could pose. But it shows that the power of nuclear energy, while it can be beneficial for a lot of things, is only as safe as the hands that it's left in, whether it be somebody who genuinely wants to do good for the world, or a corrupt organization that would rather cut corners to save money. Now, the three um, CEOs over 
TEPCO, although they were able to avoid a criminal charge, they were ordered to pay compensation. But that does little to anything for the people that had to suffer in the wake of this disaster. So that will do it for today's episode. In part two, we will talk about the sister plant of Daiichi, Fukushima Daini, and how they were able to somehow avoid a similar disaster. And after we talk about Daini, we'll talk about the public and how they suffered as well, not just from the nuclear fallout, but from the disaster that happened that day. So thank you guys for listening. And on this episode, it's a very heavy one and lots of information that can easily be left out. So if you have any comments that you would like to say, please feel free to let me know. You can email me at manicmanorpodcast at gmail.com. You can also comment um, on YouTube as well. Or reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram at manicmanorpodcast. So until the next episode, you guys, I hope you have a wonderful week.